Uh, it was 1993, and uh, this woman right here and I had been dating for five months. And her mom called us and said she was going to come to college and she was going to take us out to eat. Now, I had only met her mom three or four times and I wanted to make a very good first impression. So I sought her approval. I wanted her mom's approval. So I pulled out my best bottle of cologne back in 1993, and this is what it was, Polo Sport, and I sprayed myself down so that I would smell good when I met her. And I was looking good, and I was smelling good, and I just knew that by the end of our time together, she would be like, oh God, please allow that young man to become my future son-in-law. So we set up a time and we set up a place to get together. And I told Jen, I said, hey, don't worry about anything. I'll actually pick you guys up. And so uh, I got my car all cleaned up that usually smelled like sweaty socks and beer. And uh, I got some of those potpourri kind of air fresheners, you know, that uh, women always have in their cars. Guys don't, but, you know, they have that and it makes it all smell good. And I pulled up in this vehicle. 1979 Pontiac Grand Prix and I pulled up and uh, her mom was walking out and so was Jen so I go around the other side I open up the door I let them walk or or, uh, get my uh, Jen's mom seated in the back seat so she has the whole back seat by herself I get Jen into the front seat uh, close the door I go around the other side and we take off heading to the restaurant now at this point I'm thinking to myself Everything is going great. I mean, I haven't burped. I haven't farted. I haven't, you know, chewed with my mouth open. I have actually said some very articulate things that she'll want to listen, you know, a little bit more to me. But then in the middle of this dinner together, her eyes started watering up. And I thought to myself, It must be she is so moved by me that she's crying almost to a point like, oh God, thank you so much for sending this young man into my daughter's life. But then as the supper went on, she said this, she goes, I'm not feeling very well. Could you please take me back to the college? And again, I thought it was because she was so moved by my presence being there, that this is why it was happening. Well, we immediately head back to the college, and she gets out of the car very quickly, much faster than she got into it. And she went to her car, and she took off. Now, again, I didn't think anything about it, but I knew I had won her approval. I mean, you know, I had the cologne, I had the car, I had the politeness, I had brought her to tears. I mean, I was in. Well, the next day, the truth came out. Jen comes up to me, and she says, Mom called. I'm like, oh, great. You know, I've been waiting for this. And this is what she said. I have never been so sick in all my life. That boy had so much cologne on him that it gave me a migraine headache. I had to leave from the restaurant. And then as I was sitting in the back, He was such a reckless driver, I thought I was going to throw up. I never want to drive with that boy again. (laughs) Little did she know, though. 
she would drive with that boy several more times. And I became the future son-in-law. Folks, this is the point. Every single one of us longs for the approval of other people. You seek it. You long it. You want people to like you. In fact, that's why we have on Facebook pages all the time, right? Likes. And you look at those and you want those. You want approval from other people. Today, as we look at the rest of our Satisfied series, what I want us to look at is what Solomon is discussing in our text today that we're going to look at in just a second. Because the reality is, is that all of us have checkoff lists where we're trying to find the meaning of life. And Solomon was one of those people as well. And as he's searching for this meaning of life, he starts asking all these questions in the first six chapters. Does work matter? Does love matter? Does money matter? Does pleasure matter? And he's going down this list until he finally gets to the fact that every single one of these things, as you're trying to find the meaning of life, he says it's just meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. And in the midst of all this, he gives to us what I think is our big idea for this morning. And I'll put it up here on the side screens and uh, we'll look at it. Uh, Actually, let's do the scripture first. Sorry. Let's do the scripture first. In uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, he reads these words or he writes these words. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have been cursed. So here, what Solomon's saying is you think about the meaning of life, realize that another thing that you can check off is listening to everyone's opinion, trying to seek their approval, trying to have them like you. Every little thing that people say about you is not that important. And this kind of leads us to our big idea this morning, which is this. You can seek people's approval for a lifetime, but in the end, only God's approval matters. Let me say that again. You can seek God's approval for a lifetime, but in the end, only God's approval matters. Folks, the opinions of the masses don't matter, and they don't satisfy. And this is a gigantic life-changing kind of thought for us. Because I think for many of us, we are in danger of chasing the approval of many people instead of grounding ourselves in the unconditional love of God. And I see it in the church all the time. People love God. They come to church. They do those things. But they have such a desire to want everyone to like them and to seek the approval of other people. I mean, am I the only one who is ever tempted to seek the affirmation that comes from people instead of living the call that God has on my life? Am I the only one who's ever tempted by that? No. Oh, thanks, Jordan. (laughs) Mom and Dad are teaching today, so Jordan will uh, say some things. See, thank you, Jordan, because a lot of these people are so holy right now, they're like, no, that's not me. It's not me. But it is you, isn't it? You long to seek people. You, you know, just like her mother. That's all I can say. Just just like her mother. But we long to seek the approval of other people. 
You see, you and I have an insatiable desire to be liked. It happens when we're very young and it continues on. That we want other people to like us. And we will go to extreme measures for that to happen. In fact, uh, I was just thinking about the first church that I pastored. I became what was called a preacher pleaser. In other words, whatever people wanted, I wanted them to know that I could provide. And it was kind of like not in the written job description, but it was in kind of the uh, uh, assumed job description that I was to please all the people in this church and not to rock the boat. And what I learned was is that I simply became a performer for people. Have any of you ever felt like you had to perform for people to seek their approval? That you just had to perform just enough so that they would like you, that they would approve of you. Maybe as a kid in school, you thought that if I'm going to get the approval of my mom, I have to get A's. And every time you'd get a B, your mom would be like, ah, well, you could have done a little bit better. And that B felt like an F to you. Or maybe you strove uh, to be the best person in sports because you wanted your dad's approval and you did anything for his approval. Or you uh, strive to be the first chair in the band so that the band teacher would lift you up and go, ah, look, our first chair. And then as an adult, maybe you continued to go down that path and you would perform for your boss. You'd stay over late just to get their approval. Or you try to be the perfect spouse so that you would get more love from your spouse. Or you try to be the perfect parent so that they would like you. And you find yourself more and more creating these impossible standards that no one could ever get to. And yet you do because you want that desire to be approved, to be liked, to have people be pleased with you. You see, folks, in our world, it's very seductive for us to seek the approval of other people. In fact, they give bonuses for that, don't they? You do things and and they actually give incentive for you to meet the needs of other people. And Solomon writes, performing or trying to pay attention to every word people say is not only meaningless, but it's dangerous. It's not just meaningless to try to get everyone to be happy with you. Actually, it can become dangerous. You know, when you live for the opinions of the crowd, it's all but impossible to stay on course with the calling that God has on your life. Because God's call on your life doesn't usually relate to what the world says is success. Folks, I know how tempting it is to feel like every little Thing that people say defines you. I know how tempting it is to be a people pleaser. Like I said, when, uh, when I was a pastor at the first church, uh, I, I would just go around. I'd be like, are you happy? Are you happy? Are you happy with the hymns? Are you happy with the children's ministry? Are you pleased with everything? Are you happy? And then I'd go to Jen. Are you happy? You know, and she was always happy. I mean, just, just always happy. 
But all of a sudden you're going around that. And have you ever noticed this? Every time that you try to please more than one person, how it gets very crazy. I walked around with the fake smile. I'm happy. I'm the happy pastor. I'm the pleasing pastor. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I would go to every church event and I would be the last one that was there so that I make sure that everyone was happy. Everyone was good. And I would say exactly what people wanted to hear. And you know what, folks? It was exhausting. You ever have that happen in your family before where you're trying to get everyone to be happy and no one's happy, but you're trying to like put them all around and you just get exhausted. You get tired. You get worn out. And what I found in that is that the more that I tried to please people, the more I drifted away from God. And I was nothing. And I had no satisfaction. Folks, we all live in a world where there is no shortage of opinions on you and I. And if we try to get approval in every situation that we're going, not only will we fail to meet the expectations of people, but we'll fail more importantly, to meet the expectations of God. And Solomon says this. Let's read it out loud again together. Let's read it out loud. Do not pay attention to every word people say. No, you don't have to go any more than that. Do not pay attention to every word that people say. You know, folks, the reality is God's opinion is the only one that ultimately counts. And he knows you and he loves you and he's for you. And when other people's opinions, though, when you look up at it so much and you really want them to like you, you really want them to please you, you know what that person becomes? An idol. Because they become the substitute for God. Because you're doing everything to please that other person. And when you try to please the voices and the expectations of others, you will never be satisfied. You will never have ultimate peace. But this isn't a new thing. Jesus understood this very well. He looked at the religious leaders of his day and he said, they're all a bunch of people pleasers. They'll do anything to please, but they're not pleasing God. And in John 12, 43, he says this, they love the praise from men more than the praise from God. So if you imagine, think of a continuum, and there's the praise of people, and there's the praise of God, and you and I are caught in the middle, being pulled back and forth all the time. And which way will you choose to go? Because throughout history, there has been this pull. It's not a new phenomenon, folks. It happens to you every single day. true uh, what Chris is saying, that we're always caught between the praises of people and the praise of God. And I find myself struggling with this in lots of different areas of my life because we live in a very feedback-driven society, right? And so all of us play different roles. And for me, a couple of roles that I find myself receiving a lot of feedback in are the fact that I'm a physician, a doctor, and I'm also a mom. And so both of those roles are very feedback-driven. And uh, people always want to share their opinion of how you're doing in, in, in both of those roles. 
I mean, lots of other roles too, but in particular, those two for me. And I think, um, to some degree, that's to be expected, right? Uh, but it can be a little bit overwhelming. And so then, I don't know if you're like this at all, but I have a tendency sometimes to be a little over-analytical about conversations I have or uh, feedback I see in a written form or whatever. So I think, uh, when I get home, I'm like, well, I wonder if that interaction I had, if I said the right thing, or if I would have phrased it a little differently, maybe it would have gone better. Uh, well, did you see that look that she had? Well, maybe she was upset. I had no intention of upsetting her. That was not what I, I wanted to do, but like she kind of looked upset. And so uh, you kind of replay things in your mind. Does anyone do that? Yeah. Yeah. You get home and you think, oh gosh, maybe I, I, I should have said something or done something differently. And uh, I didn't figure I would be alone in, in that thinking process when I get home. And so in a recent example, as part of my role as a physician, in my over-analytical mind, um, I have been teaching medical students as a, as a foundation uh, for you. I've been teaching medical students pretty much ever since I've become a doctor uh, about 17 years ago. And this is when I was 15, I became a doctor. 17 years ago, because I know that some of you are trying to do the math in your head about how old I am. Uh, anyway, this is a, a recent group of medical students that I've been uh, involved in teaching, and they're just a really fantastic group of, of people and will make fantastic physicians. But I've had lots of interactions over the 17 years that I've been teaching medical students. I've taught in the classroom. I've taught one-on-one -on -one in, the, in the clinic. I've taught in the hospital and group settings. I've uh, mentored people. I've had lunches with them. Uh, and so I've been involved in, in the education of medical students for a really long time. And uh, a few weeks ago, I received an email from the Indiana University School of Medicine, the Muncie uh, campus. And in the email, the coordinator for the School of Medicine said, uh, I'm so pleased to let you know that this year you have been chosen as the clinical faculty teacher of the year. And I um, <clears throat> was really overwhelmed and uh, honored by getting this email from her. And so after I responded, I finished, you know, all of the necessary responses to an email. Um, yes, we will be attending the award, you know, banquet, and yes, my husband will be attending with me, and no, he definitely will not eat the vegetarian option, and uh, please definitely order him steak. Uh, yeah, you know, finish all of those kind of uh, wrapping up the email and, and making sure all of the details are fixed. I sent off the email, and then I was having a conversation with Chris later that evening, and I was like, really weird that they that I'm like the teacher of the year like I haven't even really taught them that much this year uh, like there's a lot of other really good doctors that teach them um, and well maybe they just didn't have as many teachers this year as they usually do um, well maybe they like misread some of the like votes or something I don't know um, but, like, there's just no way that this is right. This just can't be right. And he was like, well, okay, let me get this straight. So what you're saying is you've received this email from this entity that you've been working with for 17 years that uh, said they're so glad that you teach, that have already tried to book when you're going to teach again, and have ordered me steak. 
you're trying to tell me that these people somehow made a mistake and don't want you to receive this award. And I was like, okay, you know, probably overanalyzed that a little bit and, um, and, and didn't give myself enough <laughs> um, credit at, in that way. But I think that that kind of comes naturally to most of us, right? Like, well, that just can't be right. Um, and we kind of second-guess our abilities and what God has designed us to do. And, and it's a tendency for us to overanalyze and be sensitive um, to comments, uh, which leads to insecurity. The other thing uh, I've noticed about being a doctor is that you're rated all the time. Uh, you can be rated in any kind of setting at any moment. So in the office, there's like a paper form that can be filled out. Uh, there's uh, national surveys that are sent to people's homes, and you fill those out. There are phone surveys that are done of patients after an interaction that you've had with them that uh, have to be answered. So we're constantly receiving feedback. And you have the ability, anytime you want, to go on a number of websites, health grades, vitals, um, Google reviews, whatever it is, this is just a small smattering of the opportunities that you have to get on there and rate me. Uh, anybody can get on there and rate an experience that they've had with a doctor. I mean, I can go from a five-star doctor to a one-star doctor in the blink of an eye just based on a few comments. And it was interesting, this weekend I was reading actually some reviews, and this one poor guy, he got bad reviews and his rating went down because he wore a bow tie. No joke. It said, uh, what's the deal with the bow tie, doctor? What do you think you are, a magician? Uh, and so this poor doctor, there was absolutely zero about the patient care interaction, about you know, the quality of care, anything at all to do with this doctor, except for the fact that he wore a bow tie. And so this is a world that's just full of constant feedback and sometimes criticism, and sometimes it's really not even valid or appropriate, but it's always there. And maybe you're not in a, in a role that is publicly sort of evaluated like that, but I would imagine that no matter what you do, um, there's always someone evaluating you and always someone that wants to give you an opinion. True? Yeah. So uh, another role that I play in my life that I feel like I'm constantly being evaluated in is that of being a mom. So I know we have lots of moms here today, right? Um, yes, uh, props to our moms for sure. I love being a mom, and there is just nothing that I would trade for being a mom. And I'm just like most moms. I think I have the best two kids in the whole world. And aren't they, aren't they adorable? <laughs> Uh, but, but those of you who are moms or dads, but I see this a lot with moms, and I've seen this a lot in the office, actually, with moms over the years. Moms always feel like they're constantly being evaluated and often criticized for what they do. Don't you love how when you're at the mall, a certain random stranger will come up and be like, think that baby needs a blanket, <laughs> right? Um, like, thank you, random, perfect stranger at the mall for your parenting advice. I appreciate it. Um, or you're at the preschool library time, and you hear moms in the background, like in the corner, whispering, can you believe that three-year-old does not read Shakespeare or play two instruments yet? I am seriously worried about their future. 
um, because there's just all this kind of weird mom competition and expectations that your child should achieve a certain level at a certain age. Uh, And so there's all of that feedback and criticism that happens. Or how about the mom of an older child? Well, can you believe that mom bought her son a car? Or can you believe that mom is not going to buy her son a car? I mean, really, like we see that on both sides of the coin. And so we deal with, as moms, a lot of criticism and a lot of evaluation of our job um, and how well we're performing as being a mom. So parenting is another one of those sort of high feedback zones. And for me, I feel like a lot of the roles I play in my life, I'm constantly sort of shuffling through other people's opinions. And I think that's true for all of us, no matter what you do, uh, that we have people sort of telling us what to do or who to be or how to make things better or uh, the best plan for success based on their opinions of you. So we have parents, we have in-laws, we have bosses, we have neighbors, we have advice columns, we have TV newscasters and people on um, radio constantly giving us opinions about how we should act and be. And uh, there's a lot of times that that is, uh, has so many critical undertones to it or some sort of sense of disapproval of the way that you're currently doing things. And sometimes that feels really overwhelming. It feels like you have all of these negative uh, criticisms sort of coming at you and that you're swimming in this sort of sea Uh, of criticism. And so one thing that I have found in um, very like high feedback areas and roles that I play is that in order not to feel like I'm sinking and drowning in that sea of criticism, that I really have to shift my focus away from what other people are saying and shift my focus into onto what is it that God says about me? Like how am I defined according to God? Um, so that I don't feel so overwhelmed by that sea of criticism. I'm going to share a couple of scriptures with you. Uh, Jeremiah 31.3 says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. It's so awesome to me to think about how that love that God has for us is eternal and that he desires to draw us close to him in, in a kind and fatherly way uh, so that we're part of his heart. And then this one has always been one of my favorites. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and we are. It's amazing to me to think about that parent-child relationship that God chooses to have with us, that he loves us as much as those of us who are parents love our children. He loves us more than that. And that he has that paternal relationship with us. And then the other thing is, I just love the word lavish. Isn't it a great word? Love the word lavish. Um, And lavish means to give generously, profusely, or extravagantly. Isn't that awesome to think about how God lavishes? He, like, pours on us with extravagance uh, his love for us. And that is just amazing to me. And, um, And I just really love to think about that concept. So, what do you do when you're being criticized and you're tempted to seek the approval of others? First, you remember God's great love for us. Um, So, this started at the beginning. This is still there, and it always 
be there because God is constant. God is never changing, and God defines love. So we remember God's great love for us. The second thing I have found helpful in repelling all that criticism and helping me not to drown in the sea of it is to hold tightly to my calling or hold tightly to your calling. I'm going to talk a little bit more personally about some of my own calling a little later on, but all of us deal with criticism when it kicks up. Uh, You have to hold on to your calling because criticism will always increase. It just will. It will always increase when you try to make a difference or when you try something new or when you're trying a new path that God has called you on. Criticism will always kick up. And in those moments, you have to hold tightly to the calling that God has on your life. There are many, many examples of this in Scripture. I want to share one with you um, that uh, many of you may be familiar with. It's found in the New Testament in Luke uh, 23, and it's it's a scenario when Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor overseeing the trial when Jesus was arrested, and uh, everyone wanted him, to, the Jewish leaders and everyone wanted him put to death. Uh, and so Pilate, though, as the as the Roman governor, he knew that Jesus didn't do anything wrong. He knew that Jesus was innocent, and he wanted to let Jesus go. And he knew that letting him go would be the right thing to do. But the crowd outside, they were shouting and they were screaming and they were becoming louder and louder. And uh, he was concerned that there was going to be a riot and this crowd just kind of had this uprising. And they were shouting for Jesus to be crucified. And uh, because the shouts of the crowd became so overwhelming, Pilate eventually breaks down. And so the scripture uh, says, uh, starting in verse 23 of chapter 23, uh, it says, But they kept at it, meaning the crowd. The crowd kept at it. A shouting mob demanding that he be crucified. And finally, they shouted him down. This is, this is key right here. Pilate caved in and gave them what they wanted. He released a man thrown into prison for rioting and murder and gave them Jesus to do whatever they wanted. Pilate caved in because of the shouts of the crowd. Jesus, our Savior, the hope of the world, he was crucified because one man couldn't stand up to the voice of the crowd. I, I just don't want to be that kind of person who wanders away from what God's called me to do because I listen to the voices of the crowd. She's good, isn't she? Um, I'm totally witch in on this. That I don't want to wander away from God and listen to the voices of the crowd. But sometimes the criticism can become very, very difficult to where it's hard to do that. When we first started the JAR, one of the things that many of you know is that we received, and maybe some of you don't, we received a lot of criticism. There were a lot of people that were not happy 
that there was a new church that was going to be starting downtown. In fact, I remember a couple of pastors calling me and saying, don't try to steal my sheep. I'm like, okay. We go for people, not sheep. So, you know, we won't, we will not take your sheep. Uh, some people thought we were a cult. Other people were really upset that why would a church spend so much money on a billboard and on radio commercials? Like, why would they do that? I even had one pastor who was a youth pastor. He posed as someone interested in the church, sent me an email, gave me these huge theological questions. I spent a half hour returning all the questions back to him. And then he finally kind of confessed at the end and said, well, I was just trying to set you up. Welcome to Muncie, you know. So we experienced our fair share of criticism when we first came here. So that's why when the bridge came, when Commonway came downtown, we were one of the first churches that actually gave financially to them and said, we are for you. This is not about a a competition because there are more than enough people to fill every church in Muncie that over. So we experienced this criticism. But in the midst of all this criticism that took a wear and tear on our marriage and all of that, There were friends and family that were around us saying, you can do this. Hold tightly to your calling, because if you do so, God will see you through this. And even though 14 months into this, we had grown from 20 people to 8 people. Did you hear that? We had grown from 20 people to 8 people, and I was ready to throw in the towel and give up. God, through his amazing grace and his love for this community and for what he saw would go forward, he said, hold on tightly to the call because one day you will see people who will sit in chairs on a Memorial Day weekend and they will say, my life was changed because I got connected to this place. And it's all because of his honor and his glory and It was all worth the criticism. Now, let me ask you this this morning. Have any of you felt called by God to do something, but you're afraid of the criticism? Maybe God is stirring something within you, and yet you're concerned. And I just want to be honest with you, that if you do something on behalf of God, you can guarantee you're going to get some criticism. It's just going to happen. You can take it to the bank. People are going to criticize you. And so when that happens, what we have to do is not only know that we're loved by God, we remember that we're loved by God and we hold tightly to the calling, but thirdly then, we have to develop a filter. We have to develop a filter. We have to develop a filter so that you can decide what voices can have airtime in your head, and what voices can't have airtime. There's kind of a key phrase that I want you to uh, hopefully remember after today, is this. Not everyone, but not no one. Not everyone, but not no one. When the people that I love, that when they correct me, when they give constructive criticism, when they have a hard truth that they speak into my life. I want to hear it and understand it. Why? Because I have blind spots. And I need to hear it. 
When my wife Jennifer, my best friend Chuck, or uh, people in my small group come and they give me the hard truth about myself, I want to face it. I want to be able to learn from it. It's like necessary medicine to hear criticism from other people that you love. I mean, if, if you won't hear criticism, folks, from other people in your life that care about you, then you're in a dangerous place. Because what it shows is you really don't want to grow. You don't want to change. You don't want to get better. And most of all, you're saying, I have no blind spots. I'm perfect. Solomon wrote these words in Proverbs 29.1. Let's read this out loud together. Whoever stubbornly refuses to accept criticism will suddenly be broken beyond repair. Folks, we must be open to receiving criticism, but not all criticism should be weighed equally. In other words, the criticism from your best friend should not be at the same place as the jerk in the uh, you know, gas station that comes up there and starts going off to you about whatever. You cannot keep criticism on the same plane. Because if you don't have any filter then what happens is everything goes to your heart and you get discouraged and you get troubled by what other people are saying. You know, when I was a preacher, pleaser, uh, any offhand comment about my teaching, it would undo me for like days. I'd be like, you know, the teenage girl calling, you know, the mom and saying, Mom, no one likes me. Jen was my teenage mom at that point. But I would call her and I'd be like, no one, no one like likes me. No one cares about me. No one, uh, look what they said about me. And it would just crush me. But I also have known people on the other side, and it might be some people who are listening to my voice right now, that you never listen to criticism. You never feel like you have blind spots. Families and friends are telling you you're going down a dangerous road and you're like, ah, they don't know what they're talking about. They believe that what they say is right and everyone else around them is wrong. And anyone who disagrees with them is a fool or a hater or something in the church that we can't say. You know, every once in a while people will come up to me and they'll, you know, they'll want to be tough guy and they'll be like, I don't care what other people say. You know what I think in my mind? Liar. That's a dumb statement. I mean, that is very immature to say that because the reality is we should absolutely care about what some people say about us. It's just a matter of deciding who those people are. Folks, we absolutely have to develop a filter in this life. We need to determine what voices matter a lot, what voices matter a little, and honestly, what some voices don't matter. They just don't matter. Again, this is helpful. Not everyone, but not no one. Not everyone, but not no one. You see, the people that you should listen to when the criticism is flying around in your, uh, uh, in your world is those who echo the love and heart of God. In other words, people who love God more than they love you. Because if they love God more than they love me, then I'm sure that there'll be truth there. It just means 
that they tell the truth because they want you to get better. It's true, we all need a small group of people that can speak truth into our lives and give us criticism that's founded in that love that God has for us. And so, and those people help us to remember that God has great love for us. And they help us to hold tightly to the calling that God has in our life. And so once they pass that filter test, they can also be helpful to... Um, assist you as you realize the second or the fourth point, which is realize that you are God's masterpiece. Realize that you are God's masterpiece. So what comes to mind when you think of the word masterpiece? I think for me it was, well, you know, great masterpieces of art over time. So maybe it's Van Gogh's Starry Night or... Maybe it's any one of Monet's water lily uh, series of, of his paintings. Um, or maybe it's an architectural uh, masterpiece that comes to your mind. Something like the Sistine Chapel, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, which is artistic and art- architectural all in one and is a famous landmark because of its uh, mastery and its artistry. Um, or maybe it's one of the most famous works of art in all of history and most recognizable pieces, the, the Mona Lisa, right? So when you think about a masterpiece, maybe those are the things that kind of come to your mind uh, when you think about that word. Or on the flip side, maybe it's something that is in your home and that you have on your own walls on a regular basis. Maybe it's the masterpieces that are created by your children. And we consider those masterpieces in our house, and we always have works of art of of the kids all over the walls and their refrigerator and that sort of thing, and we celebrate the masterpieces that they create out of their own energy and uh, artistry. But have you ever considered the idea that you are God's masterpiece? That's kind of a crazy concept, and sometimes it's difficult for us to swallow. But I'm going to share a scripture with you. Uh, Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's masterpiece. I mean, it's right there in the scripture, in the Bible says, We are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. So do you feel like a masterpiece? Here's another verse. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. And we, out of all creation, out of all creation, became his prized possession. So we are his prized possession, his treasured masterpieces. And I feel like that's really hard sometimes for us to swallow because I know I'm not alone in the struggle sometimes with Uh, self-confidence or um, self-esteem. In fact, uh, when I was growing up in in an early marriage, I had had some serious struggles in those areas with my own um, self-identity and self-worth and things like that. And Chris, I think he shared with you a few weeks ago about how he challenged me early on in our marriage to put on a post-it note, uh, I am God's masterpiece, and stick it to the mirror, right? And that every time I look in the mirror, I say to myself, I am God's masterpiece. Now, I know that sometimes these uh, 
you know, exercises may seem odd or weird. And so you look at yourself in the mirror, and maybe it's like a little splattered with toothpaste, and you're like, I am God's masterpiece, you know? <laughs> and that might be kind of hard, right? Uh, and it might seem a little odd. But I'm telling you, these types of things work because, work because when you speak truth to yourself or to anyone else, especially when that truth is grounded in Scripture, it is transformative. It changes your life. So you look in there and you say the, word of, the words of God to yourself, I am God's masterpiece. It changes your life. And so I think it's really important for us to know that before the beginning of time, God knew you. God planned and ordained the fact that you would be here on this earth. He planned how many hairs or not hairs would be on your head, right? He planned the color of your eyes. He knew whether you would or whether you would not like chocolate, right? For those of you who are in the would not, I don't know. I mean, I, I have no words for you. Um, he, the, the thing is, he chose to inhabit the earth with humankind. He wouldn't have had to do that, right? He chose to inhabit the earth with you. And why? Because you are his prized possession. You're his masterpiece. He did it out of love. The very essence of God's nature, of God's uh, character, is love. God is love. God cannot be who he is not. And so it's important for you to know that you are a prized possession and that you are his masterpiece. And so when you are being criticized and when you are tempted to sort of seek the approval of other people, take a step back and realize you are God's masterpiece. Okay, uh, last thing when you're being criticized is that you need to remain a builder-upper and not a terror-downer. You need to remain a builder-upper and not a terror-downer. This week, as I was putting this last point together, um, I just want all of you to know that Dr. Jennifer Bunch was not much of a builder-upper on this point. She told me, first of all, these are not words that are real words. Secondly, it's not good grammar. And finally, I thought, well, I'm the pastor. We're doing builder upper and tear downer, okay? <laughs> then there also is a difference. You know how she just like showed these amazing artworks of Monet and, you know, uh, the Mona Lisa and just all this kind of, and you know, that's the camp. And then I had some of my own artwork and uh, somebody I look up to a lot. Here it is. Um, anybody know who that is? Bob the Builder. That's right. Now, Bob is a contractor who has a group of other characters who are around him, and they're all about doing renovations or repairs. And in each episode, Bob will get together, and Bob will say to all of the other characters, can we build it? And all the characters will say what? Yes, we can. And I used to love to see my goddaughters first and then uh, my daughters Jordan and Shiloh uh, watch this show because after they would watch it, I was amazed at how they would start building each other up. They'd be like, Shiloh, you can do it. Jordan, you can do it. Abby, you can do it. Hannah, you can do it. You can do it. You can do anything. Now here's the question. 
Do you know who the ultimate builder-upper is? Your heavenly father. That's right. Thank you. And he loves you so much. And he's constantly in pursuit for you. In fact, we have a scripture verse. It's one of my favorites in uh, Romans 8.31. Let's read this out loud together. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, the reality is, if you just had the second part of that, who can be against us? You could list a whole bunch of people, couldn't you? You know, a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of critics of your life who are against you. But the whole point is, in comparison to God, who is for you, what does it matter what the critics say? And compared to the fact that God is the God of the universe, anyone who is against you in comparison just has nothing there. God is for you. About a year and a half ago, I felt this prompting from God that our family needed a family motto. Something that we would say weekly. Jennifer and I have always been committed to being able to uh, build up our kids and let them know that God is for them. But the reality is, is that sometimes as you go through life, you know that God is for you. You just wonder if anyone else is for you. Specifically, is your family for you? And so we came up with this motto. It's up on the screen. Always for each other. Hey, Jordan and Shiloh, come up here for a second, okay? okay? And what we do almost weekly, we put our hands together like this, okay? And on three, our family motto, okay? One, two, three. Always for each other. And then Shiloh usually goes, woo, like that. Okay, you guys can go sit back down. You did a good job. All right? And we, we want to create that in our family, that when you're doing something, we want to be a congratulatory family. We want to be able to build people up and not tear them down. And whether it's in your family or relationships or in your workplace, I want to strongly encourage you to be a builder-upper and not a tearer-downer when it comes to criticism that hits you. About a year and a half ago, I started to feel very restless in my life, and I felt like God was moving and that I was supposed to make some changes, but I really wasn't sure what that was or um, what was going to happen. I couldn't put my finger on it. I don't know if any of you have experienced those moments where you kind of feel like uh, unsettled, um, but and you know something's going to happen and change, but you're not really sure uh, where that's going. And I really wanted God to be at the center uh, of it and for me to be in the center of his will for me and to hold tightly to the calling of my life. And so I was really doing a lot of discernment and seeking his uh, guidance during this time. And so this was over multiple weeks period of time. And then one day I was driving in my car, uh, a three-hour drive to a conference, um, and I happened to be by myself. I was driving, and I was just praying, and I I said, God, you know that I feel restless, and you know my heart and my soul, and you know that I desire to be in the center of your will for my life. And so, God, just speak to me, and speak to my heart, and let me know uh, what it is that you have for me. Um, And I felt like it was all of a sudden, although I'm sure it was after many weeks of discernment and, and prayer, that God spoke these words to my heart. He said, I want you to leave your job. Your time there is over, and your work is done. 
I have other things planned for you, and I need you to listen to me. I wrote that down because I never want to forget it, um, because it was a very powerful moment when I felt very strongly that God said those words to me. And i got to be honest with you, I was not expecting that at all. Again, I knew that there was something happening, but I wasn't at all expecting that it had to do uh, with my career. So I was overwhelmed by God's spirit, and I began to weep and drive and weep and drive and um, just kind of start to contemplate what this would mean for my life and for my family because I knew it was very clear that this is what I was supposed to do. Um, Just as I started to regain my composure about 20 minutes later, I received a phone call from Chris. He was at a pastor's conference in Chicago at the very same time. And they had had a break in their conference that morning. And he had taken some time away to pray. And he said that during his prayer time, the Holy Spirit said for him to call me and say to me that you have permission to leave your job. And uh, he's like, do you have any idea what that means? <laughs> because, <laughs> because, being real, we had not really discussed that as an option, really. I mean, he knew that I had been feeling restless and um, unsettled, but we hadn't really talked about my leaving my work. And so he was like, well, do you know what this means? And I was like, yeah, I think I have an idea. I'm pretty sure I have an idea. So... That was a really powerful moment for me um, in listening to um, God's God's Spirit speak to my heart. And um, it was a pretty emotional drive to the conference. I think I was pretty worn out when I got there. Um, But I knew that I had to follow God's direction and and to listen to his direction in my life. And and, um, so about a year ago, I did, I resigned from the job that I had. And this was a job that I had for 13 years. Um, It was a position that was filled with a lot of uh, responsibility, leadership responsibility, uh, the really amazing, wonderful colleagues, and like the most incredible patients that I could imagine that they let me share in their lives. So it was really, really hard to take down this path. Um, But you know what? I knew that God told me to do it. And, uh, and it was the right thing for me to do, to stay in the center of his will. Because that coming to that job in the first place was his calling, but leaving it was also his calling. And so you still have to hold tightly to that. And in the midst of all of this, I received a lot of criticism. I received comments like, well, why in the world would you leave such a position? You were really going somewhere. How could you just walk away from 13 years invested in that kind of work? Um, You're giving up so many opportunities that could come your way in the future. This is a really poor career move. And, you know, that kind of stuff's hard to hear. It's hard to hear. Um, In fact, this week I was at a meeting with some old colleagues, and um, I'm still hearing it. Um, about how they just couldn't believe I made that decision. And, um, and it turns out the critical comments, you know, they still hurt. 
But uh, you know what? I just refuse to be defined by a job. I, even though I really consider what I did, like God's work, I can't be just defined by that work, right? I can't be defined by a description of what I do. I can't be defined by a role I play as a mother. I can't be defined by other people's criticism. And until I figure out that I'm defined as a child of the one true king, then I haven't really figured out how to live my life. And if I don't listen to the guidance and the direction of God, then kind of, where am I, right? I can choose to spend my life chasing approval of other people and trying to please them, like Chris was saying earlier. Or I can choose to listen what God says to me and to remember his great love for me because all of his direction is grounded in that, right? And that helps you hold tightly to your calling, helps me hold tightly to mine. And if I develop that filter and people speak truth into my life and help me to confirm this is what God's calling me to do in your life and that I realize at the base of it all that I'm his masterpiece and he has amazing plans for me, then I can fulfill my call in life too and build others up and and not tear them down and so um, I think the take home message today is that you were made to shine like your life was made to shine you were made for life we're going to listen to a song now by uh, Natalie Grant and she wrote this song for someone who was struggling who kind of felt like everything was meaningless and started believing that And she was trying to help this person not let the voices and the opinions and the criticism of other people break him down. And so that was the whole point in writing this song for her. And I I hope that it moves you because it has me. It's moved me. And And I just pray that you're able to write the words of this song on your heart as you hear them. Because you were created by God on purpose on purpose and for a purpose you were created by god get rid of all the negative comments and replace those bad recordings in your brain with the fact that your life matters your voice matters your calling calling from god it matters and you matter you were made to shine And you were made for life.